Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell. I'm Stephen. And I'm Paul. And this is a podcast about storytelling. I was about eight years old as I prepared to walk into the police station. I held my mother's hand tightly as the police officer explained, there will be six men. If you see the man, point him out to us and tell us which number he is wearing. I pulled my mother with me as he led me to the door. No, you have to go by yourself, he said. You'll be all right. They can't see you, only you can see them. They won't see her at all? Are you, wearing, are you sure the mirror works, my mother said. He nodded, her lips shaking as tears ran down her cheeks. I released, I released her hand and walked in. I was outside my parents' house on an island in the Caribbean. It was late in the afternoon, and my brother and I were trying to build a tent the way we saw the white people doing on TV. <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had a clothesline, rocks, and my mom's good sheets. But the, <laughs> but the wind kept blowing our tent of sheets down. We were getting frustrated, and we started fighting about how to keep the tent up. Eventually, my brother got angry and went inside to sit on my mom's lap and play computer solitaire with her. I knew I was right about how to build a tent. I stayed outside into the evening to finish building the tent to show my brother and to spite him. As it got dark, I finally stood between two sheets, forming a tense peak along the clothing line, only slightly waving in the air. I knew I was right about how to build a tent. I turned to the house to get my brother. I saw two masked men walking up to the front door, dressed in all black and hiding behind a banana tree that led to the patio and my front door. They crouched under the banana tree. Pull your mask down, the one with the gun whispered to his partner. I froze and took a deep breath. Under the clothesline, I was still hidden by the tent. If I backed away slowly without being heard, I could follow the secret path along the wall to the neighbor's window and ask them to call the police. I took a step back and leaves crackled under my feet. Both men looked over at me in the dark. I thought you said the kids were inside, said the masked one with the gun, and I told you to pull down your mask. I thought everyone was inside, the other man said as he pulled down his mask over his mustache. As I watched them watch me, I opened my mouth to shout to my parents, but nothing came out. I opened my mouth wider, nothing. My feet were frozen and heavy. Grab her and take her to the bushes until I'm done, said the man with the gun. Every lecture my mother ever gave me about things men could do to you in the bushes flashed in front of me. I knew it was time to fight. I opened my mouth wider to scream to warn my parents and barely heard my own muffled squeak as his large hands covered my mouth. He pulled me back into his chest, silencing me. I kicked frantically, but my feet struggled to touch the top of the grass. I tried to scream again. He tightened his grip grip over my mouth, and this time he covered my nose too. He made it about two steps, and suddenly my feet hit solid ground. I I pushed back with all my might. She doesn't want to go to the bushes. She's fighting me, he said. The man with the gun grunted in frustration. Bring her inside then. My feet hung inches above the ground as he carried me across the patio, the front door open and waiting for me. The man with the gun walked in first, and from the far corner of the room, Daddy looked up from his newspaper. My brother was still on Mommy's lap, playing solitaire at the computer, their backs to the door. She turned around. Holy shit. I gripped both of my hands over his one hand. 
and pulled down as hard as I could. His arm didn't even budge. It was like he couldn't even feel me. The one with the gun walked toward my father. We're here for the money. Take me to the safe. My dad cleared his throat. I felt my eyes widen as I struggled to breathe, and I kicked and pulled at the mustache man's arm. I looked at mommy as I felt two tears run down my cheeks. She was watching the man with the gun. I kicked once to catch her eye. Oh my God, you're suffocating her, you're suffocating her. Please stop, put her down, please. She looked me in the eyes. One arm clenched my brother and the other reaching for me in, in the distance. His muscles relaxed and my feet finally touched the floor. As he released my mouth and nose and turned my face up and to the left to look at his. I saw his eyes widen through the holes of his mask. I'm so sorry, are you okay? He said as I gasped for breath, are you okay? I nodded and gasped confused looking at his mask. Mommy's voice shook. Can she come and sit with me? Please give me my child. I ran to my mother and brother at her desk. My father stood up on the other side of the room. Don't do anything stupid, the leader said as he tapped out his stomach with a gun. Then he said to the mustache man, go get a knife from the kitchen and stay with the wife and kids. He returned with a butcher's knife and sat next to us. He'll stay with them, the leader said, while you take me to go get the money. Stay calm and don't do anything stupid. We're here to deal with you. My father nodded slowly in response. The room was suddenly very quiet. My mother's legs were shaking us as we sat on her lap. The leader poked daddy's stomach with the gun a few times and led him into the kitchen. The masked man tapped the butcher's knife against the wood of the desk. Tap, 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 tap. All three of us stared down at the tile floor. My mom was trembling all over. Tap, 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 tap. Mom pulled my brother and I closer to her chest. One of us, ran, one of us wrapped in each arm. Tap, 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 tap. She continued to look down at the floor as she nervously blurted, I don't want to upset you, but the tapping of the knife is making me nervous. Please stop, I can't take it. Tap, 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 and the knife froze in the air. I'm sorry, ma'am, I didn't mean to upset you, the mustache man said, his words falling over themselves. Don't worry, we're not here to hurt you, he said. She took a deep breath. I know you say that, but it's hard to believe as you tap a knife in front of me. The mustache man turned his chair towards us with the knife still in his gloved right hand. Where do you go to school, he asked me. <laughs> My mother shook me not to respond, but he asked again. It's okay, I won't hurt you. Do you both go to the same school? My brother and I nodded. What do you want to be when you grow up, he asked. <laughs> My brother and I looked at each other in silence and then up at our mother's faces, eyes wide. I don't know, I said, and we both shrugged our shoulders as our mother's lap shook beneath us. Please don't hurt my children. Take what you want, but don't hurt my children, she said. No, ma'am, that's not what I came here to do. I just want the money, he said, as he looked her in the eyes. She watched him rest the knife down on the desk away from us. Are they getting good grades, miss? <laughs> then he turned to us. You two need to stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't end up like me. I didn't choose this life. This isn't what I wanted to do. But I didn't pay attention in school. So when I finished, I didn't have any opportunities. Now my grandmother is sick, and I have to do this to afford the medication. Stay in school. He looked up at my mother and back at us. Your parents are paying a lot of money for you to, go to, for you to get an education. 
Education leads to opportunity. Get a good education. I don't want to see you be like me. My brother and I nodded and glanced at each other from the corner of our eyes. The man with the gun came back into the office with my father. They didn't have it. The safe was empty. My parents ran a car and villa rental company from home, and apparently a rumor had started that they kept $30,000 in the safe in the house. The truth was, the safe just had old papers and a combination they frequently forgot. Are you sure there's nothing else, old man? The man said to my father, who had his hands in the air. His left hand was missing his gold watch and ring. The gun poked him in the back as the robber returned him to the desk. Stay quiet and don't call the police for 10 minutes. If we hear sirens, we'll have to come back. He shook his head. You don't want us to have to come back. The mustache man got up and they left. Daddy asked us, are you okay? The three of us nodded as my mom asked you. He nodded back and we sat in silence for a few minutes. When we felt it was safe, my father picked up the phone and called the police. A mix of plain clothes and uniformed officers arrived and separated us for questioning. I saw real guns for the first time. These guns seemed as though they would do real harm, as opposed to the robber's guns, which seemed ornamental. My mom told them I had seen one of the robbers. My dad said, she's a talented artist, to the officer, and turned to me, why don't you draw him? <laughs> I felt pressured, but I eventually drew a quirky Hitler-esque drawing of a mustache that I knew was useless. The officer took it, looked at it, and said, good job, thank you. <laughs> a patronizing platitude, I knew it wouldn't help him. And then, and then the next day was school as usual. Two weeks later, they called my mom to come in with me to the police station. As we drove to the police station, I sat in the front seat. I don't want you to identify the man, she said. It was the opposite of everything Daddy and my brother were saying. While I was a teller at the bank, the bank was robbed. I saw his face just like you, and I went into court and testified against him. But he saw me when I testified. At his sentencing, as the officers were carrying him away, he looked at me in the eyes and promised me, I am going to find you, and I am going to kill you when I get out. My testimony put him away. She glanced at me and said, it feels weird saying this, but I was lucky. He died in jail a few years into it. If he hadn't, I'd be living every day in fear. I don't want that for you. But this robber wasn't like that, I responded. Not the one I saw, he was nice. <laughs> <laughs> if you testify, he'll see your face, and if he goes to jail, even if it's for a decade, you'll only be in your teens when he gets out. I just don't want you to live your life in fear. But I need you to listen. It's important you don't tell anyone I told you this. The police can say I'm obstructing justice and I can get in trouble. The decision is up to you. A few minutes later, I stood in front of a one-way mirror with a nice robber, clean shaving, and wearing jeans, and a, sh and a shirt on one side and me and the two officers on the other. Take your time, the officers said. Look good. I stood in silence for a few minutes. Then I slowly walked the length of the mirror. I figured this would be the only time I'd see this room in my life. The officers watched me and asked, do you see him? I looked at the robber's face one more time and then looked at the officers in the eyes and said, nope, 
I don't see him. Thank you. Are we back for real this time? I think we're back for real. Okay, so the ones so far have just been like, they're not, no one's going to hear those. No, no, this is the time that we're really back. Oh, okay. Well, welcome back. Yeah, you too. We just uh, we just, we just heard a great story from uh, Jet Stubbs. She's, she's great. She's a, another friend of the event and has told a few stories. We always just love having her. She's, she's just always got something, something brewing. It's great. Yeah, and this was the, the first story she told uh, with us, and it... Is, is one from, from early childhood. We actually don't have too many stories, I would say, that are told from, from such a young perspective. Yeah, because so much of what we're going through right now is the most important things that have ever happened to us in our lives, ever. Exactly, yes. Uh, or Well, uh, we, we talk about this a lot, actually, that, that different storytellers have these weird moments of time when they so many of their stories sort of are pulled from. Mm-hmm. Um, and rarely those story is, does that, is that moment happening when you're you know, 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. But... But that's what we want to talk about. You know, we're doing these, we're doing these sort of little short bits about different different things about how people try to tell things. And this is an interesting one because it is trying to tell a story uh, from a perspective that maybe you no longer have exactly. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think everyone. I presume most people telling these stories were not entirely remember what it was like to be eleven. Mm-hmm. And and so how do you how do you stay true to that feeling of, of of being you know of being a narrator that is telling a story but still you know from a perspective that you can't exactly embody do you uh think about these kind of stories because in in thinking about this uh um this particular example that we used was was great because it was from a like the whole thing the whole story was took place at this one it's one story from her childhood I find whenever I, if I've told stories that, like, they just maybe a section involves that. Like, it's never, like, it's maybe just, like, a memory or something that you're using to, you know, connect it or compare it to, like, something you're talking about now. But it, this one takes completely, the whole thing, it takes place in the past. Yeah, which I think is very different because we've talked about this before, but I think the question of who you are as the narrator Mm-hmm. is different in those two examples, right? So often, if you're telling a story that sort of flashes back to a moment as a kid, then you as a narrator, narrator is still the version of the person you are in front of them. Mm-hmm. And you're telling the story sort of, you know, that is, that, that you're telling, it's the, it's the 23-year-old version of yourself telling a story about 11 versus a story like this where, you know, it's an I personal narrative, but it's entirely you are the 11-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing is being told as if you're the 11-year-old. There's no moment that sort of acknowledges to the audience that I'm this, I'm this adult here. That it's you know, it sits entirely in this other perspective, mm-hmm. which I think is 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 important and different about how you go about telling it. Even yeah, and I I don't it's I think it's really hard to do yeah because you're you're at the same time like you said you're speaking and you're the insights you have are insights now that mm-hmm. like as a as a an, an an adult but you have to kind of retain the actual events of the story and what's going on but you're you can't you cannot ignore well I don't know if I should say that as a total blanket statement, but like you can't ignore how you are interpreting this or how your your perception of it now. Like it's 
comes into the story in some way. Well, yeah, and I think it's even from this, even in this example, when you start with this idea that, you know, she's describing this moment of her and her brother making a tent uh, in the front, and and you know, it's one thing now to sort of be like, oh, yeah, it's fun, kids playing, but that's not the perspective she brings into it. What she brings into it is sort of the moment of experience of like, I, you know, I'm the 11 year old who really, really wants to build this tent. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm that person who, who under, who thinks that this is the most important thing in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, I think that is important to set the stage for the rest of the story because we have to know who the narrator is, mm-hmm. right? Like who is, who are you who is telling this story? Am I imagining this being an 11 year old telling me the story or am I imagining this being, being someone who is, you know, who has now the benefit of, you know, hindsight telling me a story about a time they were 11. Well, this is something that we've talked about a lot in terms of context of like being able to like, just right off the bat, you just in, especially in a case like this, you do have to set up or establish, okay, this is, this is, uh, cause by just saying, by just like placing us who, who she is in the story, it kind of, Again, I think there's all these things that happen where the audience maybe isn't consciously thinking about this, but it's like, oh, okay, so she's this age. So that means like this took place like approximately, like you get everything. You get a time frame, you get when approximately it took place, um, and you get like the, like you said, you establish the narrator. Like there's, there's so many things that uh, she does so well in the story to just bring us right in and we're there and then she can take off with the rest of it. And I, and I think it also helps you move forward through the story with the narrator because, you know, if you don't set up how old you are in the story, say, if you just presume it's obvious, you know, then suddenly a lot of the actions of the other characters begin to make less and less sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, if if it's not clear to me that you're, you know, that you're a child, you know, having someone tell me to stay in school is a really weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so I think to set that up, and, and then also how you react to that, right? Like, how you, how you as a kid react to someone saying that. So, well, you can, so what you can do is you can play with the fact that the audience and knows more than you do at this point. You know, you know, so mm-hmm. six friends, well, the person in the, in the, in the moment doesn't know how, you know, doesn't know what, you know, what is going on, what the, what might be happening around them in any, any other way, but because, you know, because you're 11 and you don't mm-hmm. know everything when you're 11, you know, mm-hmm. you don't know what, you know, what it would be like to be the parents. Uh, and so the, and, or, or what it'd be like to be, to be the other people in this, in this, because, because you were 11, you've never been that, mm-hmm. but the audience is so, is actually, you know, has a little bit more understand, has been, a, you know, has a bit more understanding of all of the, the thought process and all of the characters. And so you can start playing a little bit with the fact that, you know, like say at the end of the story, when the mother is trying to convince her not to, uh, not to identify the person. Um, you know, that, and yet her reasoning for not doing it is actually different from her mother's reason. Mm-hmm. And, and the audience can sort of understand that in a way that I think, you know, it may not be totally clear to the, to the, to the, to the 11 year old who's experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I wonder in all of this stuff, like what, what, what do you think, do you think we tell these kind of stories cause we're trying to make sense of these things or we're trying to understand these things like, cause all of these memories are they exist hmm. in our heads we're not we're not necessarily thinking about it every day but it's almost just like okay i'm going to tell the story about this thing this experience and you're almost sort of shining a light on it and hopefully it either creates some kind of insight for you or something i don't know what do you think i th- i think that they are 
to me, I think, well, especially the stories that happen as kids, these are the few, these are the stories that the stories that you actually remember happening to you as a kid. Like think of how many memories we've lost, mm-hmm. you know, from, from what you remember as a kid. I don't remember what I did yesterday. Well, exactly. Um, and, and so I think that the, the few memories that, that, that we carry with us, I think, uh, are, are carried with us in part because, because they've really shaped who we are. Right. Mm-hmm. I think, I think these moments of, 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 of crisis or moments of, 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 of adrenaline or you know high high level experience that stick with us for whatever reason i think in part do because they are the parts of childhood that we've carried with us you know mm-hmm. they are parts of they are they're the things that kept informing us again and again and again that we kept going back to and then in, in thereby reinforcing the the memory you know there's a there was a that is totally off topic and we can cut it if you like but there's some interesting studies going on right now about how when you go back and experience and remember something you actually rebring that memory into your existence and it can that point be it can change and it can evolve uh, before it goes back into your memory again it's almost bringing it back up as an experience to then edit and, and how and then and then and, bring, and then it goes back again and each time you do that you then have not only memory of the first time but of the second time and third time and fourth time so the more you remember something the more likely you to remember it again in the future mm-hmm. and I, so i think these things are are, are indicate that to me that it's something that you've come back to mm-hmm. our latest segment yes you want to explain the segment because i didn't last time uh it's just what if somebody brings us a, brings a story to you to our workshop or wherever and they're like i have this in this case a childhood memory that I, or experience that i would like to write a story around what would you say to them yeah, the, the sum up of the of the point. I think my sum up of the point here, which we sort of touched on earlier, would be to know who is telling the story. Uh, you know, if you are going to be the eleven year old, tell you know, then the eleven year old can't know things about the future and and needs to have a general belief system that is eleven year old to have. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be the person who is telling the story looking back, that's fine. But you got to know which one. You can't start as an eleven year old and then become an adult and then go back to being eleven. Uh, without without it really well, you could maybe make it work, but I don't think that's my one my go to. I think keeping the, you know, keeping the, who the narrator is in your mind is very important. Mm-hmm. And what would you say? What I would say is, um, it's it's related to what you were talking about with memories and stuff. Is that the more I, you know, again, this is seems to be uh, front of my mind, um, but you like we. We have these uh, stories, and they we've created this narrative, and we know what the story is. But is to find all the details just that you possibly can, because those details will might unlock other details, which can then like, you know, kind of just help with shaping the story and getting at getting more at what you actually want to uh, communicate with it. Yeah, and and if you can, asking people who are also there. You know, if you're able to get, you know, because sometimes that gives you a little more insight into what was going on. Uh, But that's our show. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Visit storieswedonttell.org and like our Facebook page for more information about our monthly events. And for more stories, check out our book, available anywhere books are sold. This episode of the Stories of Tell podcast is brought to you by the Lansdowne Cone. Social Enterprise out of Toronto that lets us use the space in October.